So last Lord's Day, we started this second sermon series looking at the book of Mark, the gospel of Jesus according to Mark. And there we looked at the book itself as an introduction to it um, and what Mark wants to show us by reading Mark. And uh, in it, we first saw that God's people were promised that a Savior would come and he would once for all bring peace and prosperity for his people. He would save them from their enemies. He would build the house of Israel, and his people would dwell in it forever. But before that happened, a messenger would come out before him. He would straighten the path for him to enter. He would prepare the way for the Messiah's coming. And this happened to be John. And then later on, Jesus comes onto the scene. He, um, We looked at how... He was baptized, how the Lord tore open the sky and proclaimed that this is my son, the beloved one. And uh, we looked at the message of repentance and forgiveness and how that is given in Jesus. And as Mark gave the introduction in verse 15, he gives us the mission of Jesus in verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Today's sermon will deal with this, what this kingdom is and what Jesus' mission is on earth as we see the first few days, or a few days in Jesus' early ministry in Galilee. And I've titled it, Jesus Came to Teach and to Show Us the Kingdom, as it says in the bulletin. And uh, we will look at three things, primarily. We'll see that following Jesus means leaving your old way of life, Jesus is the one who has true authority and teaching about the kingdom is Jesus' main focus. So the, the title again is Jesus came to teach and show us the kingdom. And my first point then, looking at verses 16 to 20, following Jesus means leaving your old way of life. Following Jesus means leaving your old way of life. As we see in verse 16, if you would follow along in your Bibles with me. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, with the hired servants and followed him. So this is the, last Sunday I said that the book of Mark is sort of a documentary drama. It's it's like a a play. You see some description of what's happening. You see what is done, the reactions to it. But we we are not as much in the heads of the disciples. John is very like, oh, and this meant, and this meant, and he said that because of. Mark is just giving us it really quickly. So the scene opens up with Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee, and it almost feels like he's nonchalantly taking a stroll along the sea. This great lake being about like 21 kilometers long and 11 kilometers wide, so 21 by 11. And the fish in the Lake of Galilee was at that time very famous, and people came far and wide to buy the fish from Galilee because there were some native fish there that you couldn't get many other places. 
So it was a very rich fish uh, community around Galilee. And um, a church historian, Josephus, noted that when the Romans came in and seized power, they confiscated some 250 fishing boats to serve them directly. And these were only the ones confiscated. So it was a big fishing fleet out on the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus walks there and, um, and he looks at the surrounding environment and the fishermen doing their work. Uh, they were using like circular nets with weights or rocks on them that they would throw out from the boat or from land and they would open up, like spiral out, open and sink to the bottom, trapping fish in it. And then it would pull up the net. And uh, Jesus there walks and the text says that they were mending and working on their nets. And uh, they would then bring them up, sort the fishes and eat them or sell them or bring them home. And as Jesus walks there along the side of Alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you f- become fishers of men. Jesus was calling disciples. A disciple is one who is under training or teaching or discipline by a rabbi. A rabbi being a, a teacher, a master, a, a scholar who would take on disciples. And it was unheard of in the ancient, ancient Jewish cu- culture that a, dis- that a teacher, that a rabbi would go out and seek disciples. Like you, you didn't do that because you were, you were a scholar, you were a PhD student, like you had it all, you had it all figured out. You knew the law, you sat and you studied and you read and you knew a lot. So people would come to you to glean knowledge. You never like went out like, hey, I know those scriptures pretty well. You want to follow me and see what I do and learn from me? That was unheard of because that was below them. That was not honorable for them in their culture. They, they needed to apply to become a disciple. They would have to go through some tests and they, would have been, they needed to be approved by the rabbi or some in his midst to see that they were actually smart enough, that they were qualified, that they had the characteristics that were needed or wanted by disciple, uh, and then they could get in. But he went out and handpicked his disciples. He said, I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me. And he went around Galilee and picked here, as the text says, he picked Simon and um, John, and also later on, he picked two other men. He saw Simon and Andrew. Um, and he said, follow me. And Jesus was what is called a peri... I need to read this. Peripatetic. So a peripatetic rabbi. He, just a fancy word that, that the Greek and ancient scholars used for a, a teacher who's walking about and teaching as he's walking about, bringing his disciples with him. Like it was not a school... At that place, he was walking along, and as he walked, as he went from one town to another, as he was going on his business, he would just have a crowd of disciples walking with him that would tend to his needs, that would listen to him, that would do the chores, that would set up camp, they would find food, and he would teach them. And so when Jesus says, follow me, 
it's not just be a follower of mine in a lofty spiritual sense. It's actually directly just follow after me. Come with me. Walk along with me as I, as I go, as I do my work. And so he said, follow, uh, be my student, be my disciple. And so the men left their families. They left their business. Um, this was not the first time, though, Jesus had met these men. Uh, on, you can read about it on your own time in the Gospel of John, chapter 1 to 4, where it's a little introduction that Mark doesn't going to go into. Mark just goes straight to the point. Jesus wants them to follow him, and he will make them fishers of men. These were fishermen, and Jesus could have gone to the highest places of learning in that area. He could have found like the scholars. He could have found the, the smartest people. He could, found, he could have find, found the most influential, the richest. I don't know. He could have gone to the elite of the elite, and he could have called them. He could have gone to the lawyers. He could have called the, the Sanhedrin the highest court of the Jewish rulers and say, I am Messiah. I want all of you to follow me and I will teach you. Could have, but he didn't. Where do you find Jesus? We find him visiting, visiting fishermen, common men without formal training at a recognized school. And he asked them to follow him. And it is astonishing what they do. They are to do. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Talking about a promotion, fishing men instead of fishing fish. I th- hopefully the smell is better. Maybe the pay, I don't know. Not necessarily in money, but at least it was more worth. And then he started with these four, then the twelve, then seventy, then thousands, and then as numerous as the sands on the seashore or the stars in heaven. And so this is what it is to be a Christian. It is to be a disciple first and foremost. It's not just to say, oh, I'm a Christian, but you can't see it on my life. It's a servant. It's a student. Being a Christian is to forsake our own ambitions unless we can lay it on the altar in service of him. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And later in the story, we see that these fishermen, we see them teaching, preaching, fishing men in Acts 4. And reading a little portion. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They, have, they had been made fishers of men. Why did Jesus choose those simple people to start it? Well, for one, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, quoting from 1 Corinthians. Jesus chose those fishermen because he could, and because he wanted to, so that through them his plan would come through because of his plan. He could have done otherwise, but he chose to do it that way. What are you? Are you a fisherman? Are you a carpenter? Are you a teacher, a student, IT personnel, window washer, soldier, working with management? His disciples were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were, uh, there was a lawyer, or one could argue, 
what exactly Paul was, but he was a learned man. But the commonality was not their their profession. It was that they followed Jesus, that he had called them to use what they had, almost like the bread and the fish. He used what was there, and he turned it into something wonderful. He started with them, and because of his plans and his uh, his foreordained way, he called a set of people, and he turned them into his disciples. That would change the world and spark this revolution that we now call Christianity. They followed Jesus, and God equips us as we are, where we are, and then it's up to us if we want to follow him or not. Will you follow? Will you follow? My second point then, looking at verses 21 to 34. Jesus is he, oh, oh, sorry. Jesus is the one who has true authority. Jesus is the one who has true authority. So looking here in the text at verse 21 and going. So Jesus and some of the disciples were, were here and they were, as they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they, were, they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? Are you teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So Mark spends little time to no time dealing with why they're there, how they got there, when they got there. But they're there now. That's the point. So he's just, important details, they're there. And one of the biggest uh, towns in Galilee where Jesus would live for a time in his ministry. And on the Sabbath, when they'd come there, Jesus entered the synagogue and he was teaching. A synagogue was much like a church as we have today. It was a gathering place. It was not the temple, not that we have the church somewhere. We're all churches. But they had the temple and they had synagogues. Synagogues were gathering places for the community where they would read a portion of the Torah, the first five books of Moses, the law, and uh, someone would comment on it or teach on it by traveling teachers or rabbis or one of those in the community. But there wasn't a pastor. There wasn't a set teacher there. It was going like someone would be asked, would you read, could you teach today? A little hectic, I would say, but... Um, So immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So this was the main thing Jesus did. He taught. He healed. He performed wonders and even exorcisms, as we will see later in today's text. But the main thing he did was to teach. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. It doesn't say what Jesus said that day, what the reading of 
the word was that day, but it says that they were astonished at his teaching. They, Mark doesn't give us anything detail of what he said, which would be very interesting to know, but he told us how the people reacted to it. They were astonished. They had never heard anything like this before. The other teachers had not taught them this or like this before. For he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes did. As one who had, one who had authority. So picture yourself in this synagogue if you could. Uh, brick, wood, I don't know what they're made of, but a building. You gather there with people that are in your community. And uh, however they did it, they asked someone to read and preach. Maybe they decided already what to read, and then they would ask someone to preach on it. But so you're there. You have gone to the synagogue for years, or maybe you just have gone there for a little while. If you're new, if you move there, the synagogue would be the center of their culture. So it wouldn't be like, oh, I don't go to synagogue because I don't want, I don't want to. Not like, oh, I'll check out this synagogue today. <laughs> so many people today check out new churches. Not that that is the wrong thing to do. But they, there was not this, I can go to synagogue. But it was, of course, they go to synagogue every time. And as you're there, um, someone is standing up. You see this new guy. Maybe some of, some of you know him as a rabbi that you've heard him teach already. Or maybe you didn't know him at all. And he stands up and reads a portion of the, of the Torah, of the scriptures, explains and teaches from it. And you're just gripped by it. He teaches boldly, not giving quotes of like rabbinal interpretations as what was the habit then. Like you wouldn't dare to preach on anything. You would just read what was already like the common acknowledgement of what that text meant. You would just find a sort of like find a commentary and just read it. It's like imagine me just standing here like Mark says on this because and so Jesus then stands up here and he preaches boldly, and he I don't know what he was preaching, but he was teaching boldly as one who had authority, and it really means just he had authority while when he spoke. He brought authority, divine authority, to this gathering place with confidence that what he said, what he gave them, was actually God's word. It wasn't some interpretation of some other dude in another synagogue or in a scribe or a lawyer. To borrow from another theologian, he was not quoting from man, but from God. How could he not, since he was God? He knew the material, and he was there when the material happened, he was there when the material was written down, so he was very familiar what what whatever he read because he he being divine know all things. He, God has always been with his people throughout the ages, and so he taught with authority, and people reacted to him, sheer amazement or astonishment. The word could mean shocked, stunned, almost even terrified of it, because they had never heard anyone like this was a thunderstrike in that synagogue, and people were amazed. The scribes were masters of P- and PhD of the scriptures, but he taught with authority. 
the prophets would say in the Old Testament, so says the Lord. But this was the very Lord speaking. This is how we should always react to God's word with holy awe. And so going a little on to verse 23 in our text. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. So as Jesus is standing, much like I do, preaching, well, he would stand and then sit down because they were sitting. That's another thing. But maybe, so one person, maybe you've seen him before. Maybe he was just someone who just came in that day. But maybe he shuffles around, maybe twitching, not sitting comfortably. Maybe under the weight of Jesus' eye upon him, but at least definitely under the weight of the message. This man was possessed by a demon, a person with, who had an unclean spirit as the evil Lord over his life. And he, in verse 24, cries out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Leave us alone, Holy One of God. I know who you are. The demon and the man testified that Jesus was the Lord. The authority of Jesus drew out the spirit, this demon, in him. And in the Old Testament, you don't see much of devil oppression. In the New Testament, when Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus sees it everywhere. Not that it didn't, it wasn't there, but it wasn't visible or at least not recorded for us. But here in the New Testament, it's recorded everywhere. Evil spirits, demons, devils, whatever you call it, but they reacted to Jesus, and Jesus just kept them out. He, he took them out. We see the kingdom of darkness reacting when Jesus comes to the, to the scene. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him, and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And we see how Jesus has just, he has, he has shown his authority in his teaching that this is one who teaches with authority. And now he shows us by his demonstration that he has the power over spirit, not only over flesh, but of spirit. And he says, go away. So the ambassadors of hell, they recognize him immediately. The other people was like astonished, like, who is this guy? But the devils, the demons, they knew this is the son of God and he's here now and we're in trouble. And the be silent. It's not just, oh, please, could you be quiet? It's you shut your mouth. Like, you do not speak. I do not permit you to speak. Go out of him. The demons knew that Jesus would bind the strong man, as the Bible says. They knew they had felt the presence of the king in their midst, and they knew that this meant certain doom. In scary movies, it's always the devils or demons who are the scary monsters. But here we see how it really is. We see who is trembling in fear because they know that they are nothing compared to Christ. Only once in the Old Testament is someone or something called the Holy One of God. The judge, Samson, who was a strong man. He did the work of God. He had the sins, which we'll not get into now. But he is the only one who was called the Holy One of God. And he was imbued with strength. Later on, I will teach more on it in chapter 3, but Jesus will say that he is the strong man who will bind Satan and all his forces, and so he will save his people. And the devils knew this. They knew of their own demise, and they, when they saw Jesus, they, know, they knew, oh, 
It's here. It's now. Oops. And Jesus says, leave. And the demon just has to obey. He leaves his man, cries out, and the people are amazed. There's the response of the people's fear and dread almost of the authority he shows. It is awesome. And there are reportings of charlatans or other priests or magicians in that culture who would use tricks and clever methods and smoke and herbal tea or whatever to drive out evil spirits. Some said that they they would put this ring, like the person had to chew on this ring and on the ring was written something and then it would like compel the spirit to come out to this ring and they would throw the ring over and they would do some chants and if this happened and if a bowl of water turned upside down it would mean that the evil spirit didn't come out like it was just a show it was just a facade it was just a play they would try they would do all these things to drive out the spirits and they would try to establish their authority in doing so but Jesus just says leave and the spirit has no chance but depart from this man. They had to obey him. And the people around them saying, this is a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And his fame spread wide over Galilee. Verse 29, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. Here as well we see that Jesus just takes her hand, raises her up, and the sickness has to leave. There was no show, no magic, no thing that she had to drink, no ooga booga, nothing. She just, he just took her by the hand, and he raised her up out of sickness. And as they were there... That evening at sundown, they brought it to him all who were sick because they knew where he was. So they brought him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. Verse 33. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So after the synagogue, he goes straight to Peter's mother-in-law's place. And this scene is not as dramatic dramatic as the prior one but Mark found it important enough he healed her as he had healed the masses in a few sentences later and they bring this mass of people like the same word as in the beginning beginning of Mark where it says all of Judea and all of Jerusalem came to see him it's written the same way that all came to see him because they brought to him all who were sick not every one but it was uh, a throng of people, a mass of people who came who wanted to be healed. They were searching for him. But uh, but he leaves. We will see that healing was not, never bad. He did it gladly and he did it often. But it was not Jesus' chief end. Then he could have stayed until now and he would never have been finished. His main was to teach about the kingdom of God. So Jesus preached boldly in the synagogue. He showed his authority in his preaching and he showed his authority in exercising and com- exercising, and, and commanding the spirits. And later on the point, he heals any form of diseases that they bring to him. So two things here quickly. 
which strikes me to the heart sometimes, never accept weak, weak preaching. This here is the Word of God. This is no commentary that I'm reading to you. And this is no commentary that I'm trying to preach to you. John Calvin, I believe, said once that, I never fear any devil, devil, any spirit or demon, but I tremble every time I climb up to the pulpit because he knew what he was handling. And so am I. And it breaks me sometimes because of my own uh, shortcomings in it. But you, listening, should never accept weak preaching. You can read a commentary all you like, and there's good in it. You can gain a lot. But if you don't have bold preachers who will teach what it actually say, says in the text, the Lord Jesus Christ will never be visible among us in our lives. The second, whatever evil spirits are, the, sh- the Bible talks about it a fair bit. Jesus did bind the devil, as we'll see later. And, but do not be foolhardy. Do not be stupid. Do not tempt. Do not expose yourself to spiritism, occult practices, or drugs, or any way of trying to commune with the spirits. The Bible says, do not do that. Do not be a, a spirit. Uh, do not commune with the spirits. Do not be a sorcerer. Do not try to commune with the spirits. And beware of what you look at and what you listen to. There might not be a demon in the TV show, but the devil sure knows how to take what you, what you look at, what you take into yourself, and bother you with it. I'm sure that as a Christian, no Christian can ever be demon-possessed, but he sure can be demon-bothered. Like my grandfather always used to say, that the more you give attention to something, the more it grows. Just like a bonfire, if you add more woods on the fire, the fire will undoubtedly grow. And there's a quote, Inside of me there are two dogs. One is mean and evil and the other is good and they fight each other all the time. When asked which one wins, I answer, the one I feed the most. Well, well, but there's some truth to it. If you give in to lust, if you give in to temptation, and if you look or partake in things that you know are not good and holy... That will be on the cinema of your mind, in a sense. And that's what the devil uses to accuse you of. It will not take away your salvation, but it will sure bother you. So devote yourself to God. Live in the Bible. Spend time in prayer. And that will grow in your life. Speaking, of course, to myself here as well. Sorry, that turned a little deep. My third point, then. Looking at verses 35 to 45, teaching about the kingdom is Jesus's main focus. Teaching about the kingdom is Jesus's main focus, which I preluded to just a little while ago, that he healed a lot of people and he exercised a lot of devils and demons or whatever you call the terminology. But his focus, as we will see, is preaching and teaching. Looking at verse 35 here, and join me as I read it. I read a little bit. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, 
Let us go on to the next towns that I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. And this, this is why I came out is alluding to Isaiah 61. And I'll read that in a second. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And so that was his self-proclaimed focus. He came to teach, to free people from their prisons, in a sense, and to bring liberty those who are oppressed. I love Spurgeon about preaching, about prayer from Spurgeon. He says, Look no man in the face till thou hast seen the face of God. Speak thou with none till thou hast speech, had had speech with the Most High. Just bringing to your attention how important prayer is. Not that it's ma- it's magic formula, but it's who is our savior who do we turn to where do we get our strength where do we get our wisdom where do we get our life from so pray Jesus went away from his mission to pray so it must be important for us as well reading on in verse 40 and the leper came to him imploring to him and kneeling down kneeling said to him if you will you can make me clean moved me to pity he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places, and the people were coming to him from every quarter. Leprosy. In chapter 13 and 14 in Deuteronomy, sorry, Leviticus, forgive me, you can read a lot of detailed ceremonial laws about what was leprosy, how to figure out if it was leprosy. Go to the priest, show him the skin, the blotch, and he will see if if the hairs are this color, do this, Shut yourself in, go back. If it's turned this color, it's leprosy. If it hasn't, then it's fine. Go wash yourself and you'll be clean. Leprosy was not only unwell, not just sick, but unclean. Uh, one with a leprosy, one a leper, was cast out. He was not allowed to have fellowship. He was not allowed to have family. He was to be sent out of camp and live as one who was not among them. He was, like it says some places, that a leper should or must be at least two meters from everybody. And when there was wind, you had to be 50 or 40 meters away from everybody so that skin couldn't blow and hit them. Uh, some, Some Pharisees bragged 
that they would never even buy eggs in the same street where they could see a leper, trying to build up their own authority. Like, <laughs> if there's a leper, I'm so holy that I wouldn't like even buy stuff. And uh, one, one scribe, one Pharisee, one said, there's a record of it, that he would not even pray for a leper because he wouldn't mix himself with that unholy thing, that uncleanness. Being a leper was an unclean, and they had to, that was one thing that the leper had to shout when he saw people, unclean, unclean. They had to dress themselves very raggedly. They had to let their hair grow out, and you could see from distance that this man or this woman is a leper. And there's no hope. Leprosy is a skin disease that basically eats up your skin, and it's really horrible. Uh, teeth can fall out. Even joints could smolder and become to nothing, to put it nicely. So it was a horrible, horrible disease. Not just did it kill you eventually, because it was basically untreatable, but it already killed you a long time before because you were killed socially. You had no one, you had no hope, you had no connection or family or friends. But here we see this leper breaking every ceremonial law, running up to Jesus, closing those 40 meters, closing those two meters, falling on the ground and crying out, if you can or if you will, you can make me clean. And it wasn't the, if you would like to, if you could. It was the, if you have a want to, that kind of a will. Like, <laughs> my wife sometimes asks me, can, uh, will you do this? I, I will, not that I want it, but I will. Trash, whatever. But uh, um, that's a story for itself. But it was not the willingness, but I, I can, I could. But would you, would you, then you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I will, and I can, so I am going to do it. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched him. Leprosy is transferred by touch uh, because if you touch the skin you could be infected by it and at least you would become deemed unclean in the ceremonial sense you were not allowed to visit the temple or synagogue you had to stay away from yourself or stay away by yourself you had to wait a certain time and you had to wash yourself you could not be a member of the community if you were unclean and so it was that if you touched something dead or some bodily fluids, you would be unclean. But Jesus here, instead of him being sick when he touched the leper, Jesus cleansed the leper, as we could see in Isaiah when the, the seraphim is flying over with a hot coal and touches the prophet's lips. It says, your sins are atoned for. You are clean now. It wasn't that the prophet's sinfulness defiled the coal, which was normally how it was, but the coal's purity was transferred, transferred over to the prophet. And here as well, it was a law that you were not allowed, you were forbidden by law to touch a leper. Jesus here touches him. Did he sin? Well, one, Jesus is Lord over all of the commandments. But secondly, as he touched him or before he touched him, he was no longer a leper. He was clean. Another of the gospel says that he was full of leprosy. It wasn't just a little like something, but it was full of leprosy in his whole body. 
and he was restored. Make me clean. He didn't ask, can you heal me? But can you clean me? Can you make me clean again? Can you make me holy again in the sense of community and culture? As well, of course, as physical. And Jesus, moved with compassion, did it. He was not moved by disgust and like, oh, all right, I'll do it. But it was with compassion that he did it. And he says, go and show yourself to the priest. Because if you were unclean, you had to be acknowledged holy. You had to be, well, at least clean. You couldn't just say, well, I don't have leprosy anymore. You had to have a priest to examine you. And he had to say that you are now clean again. And I, I read something that I, I didn't think about earlier. It was very unusual for anyone with leprosy to be, to be healed, to be cleansed, to be, become well again. So one said that since lepers were never healed, these priests had never conducted the ceremony that was in the law. So when they had to look up for the procedure of the ceremony and had to carry it out for probably the first time, it would have been a strong witness that the Messiah was among them. But Jesus said, say nothing to anyone because my time is not yet. He also shut, he also shut up the, the demons because he was not ready for it yet. We as well were lepers in a sense. We also were unclean. We were sinners. When Jesus found us, when he called us, he, he died for us. He, in a sense, then touched us, and he made us clean again. He made us holy, which is he saved us. So let us all run around and tell everybody about it. And remember as well that Jesus, he, he had such a big focus on prayer. So I encourage us all to do that as well. And as we should, we'll now pray at the end of the service. Dear God, I ask humbly that we would depend on you in all things, that we would look to you, the one who saved us, the one who cleansed us, the one who has the power to teach us how to live our lives, and the one who ultimately saved us for your own glory. And must it ever, ever be your glory and ever ours as we enjoy you and as we live for you and as we love one another keep us dependent on you in prayer keep us dependent on the community since we have been clean now by your doing by your mercy by your grace amen